you all can open up your Bible. We're actually going to see a couple texts today. We'll get to the one that Katie read for us. Uh, thanks, Katie, for reading that uh, a little bit later on. But we're actually going to start near the very beginning of the Bible this morning uh, in the book of Genesis. We'll start reading that in a moment. But before I start too far into this, I, wanted to, I didn't tell them I do this, but I wanted to point out a couple people that are with us this morning in worship that I know and love and have known my whole life, but many of you have never met them. Uh, but the uh, pastor of the church that I grew up in, uh, he's been the pastor there for a few decades even until the last couple weeks as a, a new thing to not be pastoring there. Uh, John Dimmick and his wife Penny Dimmick, uh, they were in Fort Wayne yesterday and asked if they could come, not ask, they, they said they would wanted to come and worship with us and I was thrilled to have them come. So I wanted to publicly uh, say thank you for being with us but wanted to publicly say thank you to you John especially. Uh, I was thinking about that yesterday as you're about to come to many conversations that I've gotten to have with you in the ministry you've had to my soul that then hopefully the Lord is blessing and minister our church. So thank you brother and thank you Penny for being with us. Love you guys. I did not plan to do that. Uh, man, okay. We're going to read Genesis 3, some of it here in a moment, but I wanted to actually reference at least one other verse. Uh, one that when I read it several years ago, uh, I don't remember when the first time I read was, but I remember reading it several years ago and being really struck by it. Uh, was in the book of Colossians, chapter three or chapter four. You don't necessarily need to turn to that, uh, but it'll be on the screen, I believe. The Apostle Paul wrote this to this church at Colossae. Uh, he wrote this uh, to this church. And I want you to hear what he asked them to pray for him. What he was asking them, hey, pray this for me. Pray this for the people that I'm working with. He says, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. And then I want you to hear what he tacks onto this. He says, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. That first part, we probably pray for ourselves often. We ask other people to pray for us. Hey, let God, God, please open doors of conversation for me to talk with people, for them to be willing to speak to me. Uh, but that second thing that he asked for uh, prayer about, it was striking to me. That he asked this church, the Apostle Paul asked this church, pray for me that when I get to talk with people that I can be clear when I talk to them about Christ. That's how I ought to speak. Pray for me that I can be that. And I was thinking, does Paul really need to ask people to pray that for him? This is the, the man that God used to write the book of Romans. This is the man who wrote the book of Galatians. This is the man who wrote uh, many chunks, many letters in our New Testament. The Spirit inspired to write the very words of God. And he is asking this church, pray for me that I can be clear when I speak. Pray for me that people would make sense of what I say to them, that it would, that it would uh, resonate with them. Help me make it clear, God, is what he wanted these people to pray. As I was thinking, I was trying to think of an analogy of this, and I couldn't even think about this. It would be like LeBron James, if you know him, asking people to pray for him that he could play well in a basketball game. Stuff like that. I was like, you don't really, it feels like to us like you don't really need our prayers to do that. You already do that all the time. But Paul wanted to be clear. He wanted to have clarity in what he spoke to people. Even if he had done it a thousand times, he wanted to keep being clear in what he spoke. And he said that's what he, how he ought to speak. And if Paul would say that, if he would covet prayers for that, then we should as well. Uh, as Christians who aren't being inspired to write parts of the Bible, who aren't uh, preaching thousands of sermons, who, that as average, run-of-the-mill 
Christians, if there is such a thing, we should be asking God, help me make it clear when I get an opportunity to speak. Open doors for me, but help me be clear when I speak. Help me represent you in a way that makes sense. This is how we ought to speak as well. And so towards that end, I I came across a while back, years ago, a little bit of a what I would call it, a gospel summary uh, that you hear me quote this guy all the time. You probably get sick of it, but that Charles Spurgeon came up with uh, back uh, almost a couple centuries ago. Uh, he came up with a, a, a series of three words, all that started with R, the letter R, uh, to summarize the gospel. And I, I would say this before we dive too deep into this. I think it is really helpful as you think about and pray about, God, open doors for me. Give me a chance to talk to people. It's good for you. It'd be wise for you to have some sort of idea of what you want to say when that opportunity comes up, whether it's a five-minute conversation or whether it's the first of several conversations to unfold. You should have some idea of where you'd like to steer conversation, texts you'd like to reference, questions you'd like to ask. And Charles Spurgeon, towards that end, tried to come up with a little short summary of the gospel that he could use when he would preach sermons or when he would have opportunity to talk one-on-one with people, and he used these three words that started with the letter R. It's kind of a rival to, I was surprised how many people did not know these terms when I was asking you this week, but back in the day, when it came to education of children, people would talk about the three R's, They're, even though they don't start with R, they sound like R. They talk about reading, writing, and arithmetic. Like you want kids to know how to read, you want them to know how to write, you want them to know how to compute the basic math. Well, Charles Spurgeon kind of hijacked that idea, the three R's, and came up with three words to summarize, I think, in a really powerful way, the gospel message that you could use then to say, hey, I want to share at least these three things with uh, people as I speak to them. And the three words, which we're going to cover this morning, are the words ruin, redemption, and regeneration. And they'll be up on the screen as we go. But ruin, redemption, and regeneration. I I find this to be a helpful grid uh, to talk to people about the gospel, whether you have a five-minute thing or a five-year conversation that's ongoing. We need to be talking about these three things, ruin, redemption, regeneration. And thankfully, in God's kindness, the the Bible was not written with chapters and verses in it. You all know that, right? It's not like Paul wrote chapter 3, now verse 1. Like They were written, but when we've divided up the scriptures in God's providence, these three headings all can be very, very easily tied to scriptures that are from the third chapter of a certain book of the Bible. Uh, So we have like Genesis 3 we'll look at. We'll look at a few other texts where we're going to be in chapter 3 of that Bible. So it could help you even as you get ready to speak to remember what text would be helpful to talk to people. So we're going to start with ruin. And we're going to start back in Genesis chapter 3, the very first book of the Bible. Get back to the very beginning. And Charles Spurgeon purposefully started his summary of the gospel with a heavy word, with a a word that may feel dark to some people, this word of ruin. Because he knew, like all of us know, if we read the scriptures, if we've been around the Lord enough and he's worked in our heart, that the good news of the gospel is only good news if there's been bad news. If there's been something that we dread, something we fear, something that's looming over us, the good news that we proclaim is a remedy for bad news that we hear about ourselves and about our world. And we need to hear that bad news. If we don't hear that first, then the good news is not going to make any sense to us. Or it's not going to be beautiful to us. It's not going to be powerful or appealing to us. So he knew that what God knew, that people need to know their condition. They need to know the brokenness of the world we live in, that they live in, and even the brokenness that's within themselves, the, the ruin that is within their own hearts. 
Francis Schaeffer is a famous uh, apologetic uh, spokesman. He would, be, um, he would be a wonderful teacher uh, several decades ago. He talked about a hypothetical conversation that he would have with somebody on a train or on a bus or something. He said, if I got an hour to talk to somebody, I get 60 minutes. I just know it in advance. God's given me 60 minutes to talk to this person about Christ. He said he would spend, I think there could be some wisdom in this. I might not go this far. He said he would spend 55 of them trying to help a person realize their condition and the brokenness of their heart and the, the fallenness of them as a human being. And then he would spend the last five minutes giving them the good news of Christ, what Christ has done to actually bring relief from that, to bring atonement for their sin, to bring healing from what was broken. I, I think that there is wisdom in it. I may scale that back a little bit, but I, I get what he was saying. People need to know their problem. They need to know their ruin before they know about redemption. And I, I think there's no better place to start than the book of Genesis. So if you imagine sitting down with a person thinking, I don't know where to start, Genesis, the beginning of it, is probably the best place to start. In Genesis chapter 3 in particular, I wanted to put some of the verses from Genesis 3 on the screen for you if you don't have uh, a copy of the scriptures. But I wanted to, to look at Genesis chapter 3 starting in verse 14 and going down uh, through about verse 19 or so. This is, uh, if you're reading this with a person, you sit down to read it to them, they may not have context of this, okay? Increasingly, people don't know what the Garden of Eden is. They don't know uh, what God had told people, uh, Adam and Eve, to do and not do in the Garden. But we do know when we come to chapter 3, and you may need to set this up for the person, that God had told them very clearly, don't eat of this one tree. And they very obviously, very clearly disobeyed. The, the serpent came to them, he tempted them, and they gave in. They disobeyed God. And this is what unfolds. I just want to read it for you. And I want you to imagine reading this with a person. Uh, it's always best to read the word itself, if at all possible. Not just your summary of it, but read the Bible itself with people. But uh, the author of this, who we believe to be Moses, wrote this. When God came, uh, he's going to put a curse upon the serpent, the woman, and the man recorded this way, that the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I'll surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And this is the part I would want you most to focus on if you're speaking with a person. It says that to Adam, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. This is a fundamental text to understand the gospel, uh, to understand the ruin that we're in as human beings. Uh, in this text, if you, if you read this with a person, whether you get to just hit a couple points really quick or you get to have an ongoing conversation with them, some important things that are in this text that would be important for you to speak with them about is questions like this. Like, want to be, why is our world so broken? 
That's an important thing that, that inquiring people want to know. And there is answers. There are rival answers given in the world at large. But the Bible speaks very clearly about why our world is so broken. What's wrong with it? Why is it ruined? What happened to it? And we see right here that fundamentally the reason there is so much brokenness is because of humans' rebellion against God. In verse 17, when, when God finally addresses the man himself, the one he had set up as the head there in the garden, as, as the representative of the human race, he says to him, he doesn't just say, everything's cursed because of you. He says that, but he starts in verse 17 by saying, because you listened to the voice of your wife, but he says the bigger problem is, because you ate of the tree, I told you, don't eat of it. I told you this, I gave you clear directives, and you defied me. Like you went against what I said, and he says, because of that, the ground is cursed. Because of that, there's going to be pain in your work. Because of that, this is the biggest weight of the curse here in verse 19. He says, you are going to return to the dust, Adam, which is a poetic way of saying you are going to die. There's judgment that comes because of human sin. And people have to, if you're speaking with a person, they have to understand the category of sin. If they're ever going to understand what Christ did for them, if they're ever going to understand how they can be made right with God, they have to understand what made them wrong with God. They have to understand what separates them from God. Uh, that there is a curse upon this world that we live in. It's not just Adam that's cursed, but the, the ground is cursed. Everything in this world is cursed. That's why we have pain in our life. That's why we have suffering and difficulty. That's why work stinks often. That's why things are difficult relationally with people. That's why we have disease. That's why ultimately death comes knocking on everybody's door and we must answer it is because of human sin. The world hasn't always been this way. It was made good, but it has been ruined because of human sin. And so that's why our world is broken, and people need to know that. But they also need to know that they're broken. That there's dis- It's not just a problem that's out there, that, that, uh, that man, I just, this is just a, a, a world, a broken world I have to live in, even though I'm good, even though I... I live well for God. But they need to know that sin was passed on into the human race. You see that very clearly as the Bible unfolds. And if you had opportunity, you can maybe show them some of these things. But sin got passed on. It got passed on to us. And we all voluntarily now enter into it. Uh, We're not just born into it, though we are, but we voluntarily keep it going. We know things that God has told us. We know things based on our conscience and by laws of nature. And we just go against him and we go against him. And we go against him. There are no innocent people. And people need to know not just why the world is broken, but they need to know how serious sin is. If we just tell people that sin is, I, I sometimes would be tempted to tell this to people, that sin is just like making mistakes. Or sin is just missing the mark. What sometimes we can communicate to people is like, we're really, you're trying to be good. I know you're trying to be good, but you just can't muster up good enough. God. But that is not how the Bible depicts us. The Bible depicts us as people who do not love God. People who we may try to keep up appearances of godliness, but we are defying him. And we need to know that sin is serious. When God saw Adam and Eve sin against him, he didn't just come and give them a little slap on the wrist and say, try better next time, guys. Like he said, this world is cursed because of what you just did. Death is coming to you because of what you just did. 
And then if, if you had time to read on with him, you can see that he kicks them out of the Garden of Eden, makes them go away from him. It's not a slap on the wrist. Sin warrants judgment. It, it warrants God's anger. It warrants death. It warrants uh, a severe punishment from God. And people need to know that. And if we shield them from that and we never speak about it, then Christ is going to seem small to them. Christ is going to seem lame to them if they don't understand the ruin that we've been plunged in and that we live in ourselves as sinners against God. And so Genesis 3 is helpful to get people back to the origin story of the human race, the true one, and to understand why we're in the predicament that we're in, why we have the problems that we have, and to understand that this is a serious deal. Our sin against God is a big deal in the sight of God, even if it's not a big deal in our sight. It is an enormous deal in the sight of God. And so people need to understand this ruin of the human race. They need to understand the ruin of their own heart if they're ever going to understand the weightiness of Christ and what he's done for them to bring healing. And the problem that we have as human beings and that people need to know if we're speaking with them is that we can't do anything to fix it. That we are broken We're rebels against God, and God takes that immensely seriously and hates our sin. But we can do nothing about it ourselves. We can't fix it. We we like to try to fix stuff. We like to try to find solutions to problems in our world. And sometimes we can with the small-scale problems. But with this problem, with this ruin, there is no getting out of it. There's no wiggling out of it. There's no polishing up ourselves well enough to get back to God, to, to remove the sin. That, this ruin is one we cannot put back together. It's not one that we can reassemble. It is broken. We are broken, and we cannot fix ourselves. But if you're reading this with a person, and you're trying to talk to them about the ruin of the world, the ruin of their own heart and of yours apart from Jesus, I would point you and have you point them back to the part of the curse where he speaks to the serpent, verse 14, or verse 15, excuse me, the second half of the curse on the serpent. Because God from the very beginning, he, he takes sin immensely seriously, infinitely seriously, to the point of kicking them out and saying, death is coming to you. But he also says in verse 15, he tells this serpent, and Adam and Eve must have heard this, it got passed on to us, he tells him, someday, serpent, Someday there's going to be one of Eve's offspring, one of these human beings that you just tempted and got to plunged into the ruin uh, uh, that is coming to them this, and this curse coming upon them that I'm laying upon them. Someday there's going to be one of them, serpent. Someday there's going to be one of them that is going to raise up and he will not give in to your temptation. He will not be destroyed by you. He will not cower to you. He will not be uh, given over to sin like every other human being, like Adam and Eve just did. He will not cave to you. He will bruise your head. You can keep striking and striking, but there's going to be one that is going to come that's going to fix it, that's going to defeat you, serpent. And that was embedded at the very beginning. We see that God can fix this. God can bring healing where there's brokenness. God can put things back together and make it even better than it was in the beginning. It can be more than just good. It can be wonderful and filled with grace. It can be excellent. God, we want people to know from the very beginning, has been committed to redeeming humanity. Not just to punishing, not just to ruining and cursing and cursing and cursing, but to redeem. And you know that that is God's heart from the very beginning, even before he gives the curse out. 
you hear this promise of this one who is going to come. And people need to hear that. So that would be a first heading. And you could do that through different ways and different questions you may be able to ask. But people need to know they're ruined. They need to know why this world's broken. They need to know their own guilt, their own unworthiness before God and how serious he takes it. But in the second heading, the second uh, R that we can call it redemption, we move from, if you want to think of the first one, the ruin of what we've done to mess things up. The second point of redemption is what God has done to fix it. And we, this is a big church sounding word, but it's at least familiar enough with people that we can use it. This word of redemption or redeeming something where you take what was broken and you, you win it back. You put it back together. You take something that was far away and you, you get it back. And there's two different texts I would say. We're going to have both of these on the screen because they're fairly short. Uh, that are also from third chapters of, the book, of different books of the Bible. First uh, Peter chapter 3. And then Romans chapter 3. These are two different texts that you could use as you're seeking to speak to somebody. If you feel like they've got an understanding of their brokenness and the ruin of humanity, these would be two texts that you can point them to, that you could read with them, that are going to help them see what God's done to fix it, what God's done to be able to redeem them to himself. I'd say the first one, 1 Peter 3, 18, would be probably the first one I'd recommend. Uh, that especially if somebody doesn't have a religious background, they're not familiar with all these fancy Bible terms. First Peter 3.18 covers a lot in a short amount of words. So does Ro- the Romans 3 passage. Uh, but I want to read this one. And I want you to imagine reading this to a person who's an unbeliever and think about how could I, how could I read this to them and then process this with them in a way that helps them see the magnitude of what Jesus has done for us. Hear what what the Apostle Peter wrote here. He said, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. There is so much in that text. That would be wonderful. It's very simple in one way, but there's layers of it that you could peel back with a person as time allows. Think about all that is laid in that text that you could and should try to talk to someone about. First, note that this work of getting bought back, of being redeemed, is done by Christ. He didn't say, we've done something as human beings to get ourselves back to God. He says, Christ did something. That word has a lot of freight behind it, doesn't it? Christ, this one that was uh, promised, this one that had been anticipated, he's the one when he finally came. When, and you could even talk to them about how he is a human being, but he was more than just a mere human being. He is Christ. He's the son of God who had existed in eternity, but became a human. He became that one that God promised way back in the Garden of Eden. But it's something that he did to redeem us, something he did to bring us back to God And the way that he did it wasn't how we would have guessed. It was through suffering. He says the key to what Christ did is that he suffered for sins. He suffered once even. There's some event that happened. And they may not have ever even heard much about the cross as he talked to them. But there's something, one time that he suffered that accomplished this redemption, that, that enables us to come back to God. And that one event was the cross. It was what happened outside of Jerusalem almost a few 2,000 years ago. 
And embedded in this text is uh, an idea of him being a substitute in our place. It says that he suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. There's a lot embedded in that. that You can help them see that Jesus did not deserve the curse. Jesus did not deserve God's anger, God's judgment. He was righteous. He's the one person who ever has lived that was righteous, fully, completely in the sight of God. But he suffered that one time on the cross for the, un- for the unrighteous, for people like us. And he suffered for sins. Our sins, the, the sins of us guilty people, were, get, were laid upon him, were counted to him by God the Father. And God the Father made him suffer in our place. It was for the righteous, for the unrighteous. He suffered as a substitute for us so that those sins could be removed from us. They could be off of our record. They could be dealt with. No longer over our head. No longer awaiting God's judgment, but they have been dealt with because Christ took the complete penalty for those sins. He bore the full weight of God's judgment for those sins of people like us. And tell the person, for people like you, for people like me, like our sins were placed upon him. And the one who should have never suffered, suffered beyond what you can possibly imagine. So that, he says, so that he might bring us to God. He did it for our sake. He did it out of love. He did it out of mercy and compassion for us. He said, I will die for them. I will suffer in their place, God. And he did. And after he, this verse even talks about the resurrection, that he was put to death in the flesh and suffered the full weight, but then he was made alive in the spirit, right? On the third day, this is the resurrection of Jesus that you could tell people about. This good news that the one who died for you, you don't have to wonder if his sacrifice was effective. You don't have to just hope and wishful thinking like, please God, when I face you someday, please let what he did work. Please let what he did be enough because he showed you it's enough. And tell the person, God, the same one that he just punished on the cross, he raised up from the tomb to show you, to show anybody who would ever hear of him that his sacrifice was sufficient, that he was righteous, that he could be rewarded even for his suffering. And you need to tell people that, that he was crushed for us. He was put to death, not just as some spectacle that the Romans crushed outside Jerusalem to prove a point to people, but he was crushed by God the Father himself for our sins. It's not just some historical event way back in history that we're detached from. We are involved in it because our sins were counted to him. And he suffered so that they could be removed from us, that our guilt could be done away with, our shame could be removed once and for all. And that is how he can bring us to God. He's gone back to him He's with him now, and he has made it so that we can have a clean record with God. And that we can, in a sense, even be right with him right now. We can become his sons and daughters right now, fully forgiven, fully pardoned. But someday we can go to be with him even in heaven. That we can be drawn to him and given full access to him that we don't deserve. But we can have it because of Christ. We can be redeemed because of Christ. What good news is embedded in just that one sentence that Peter wrote that you could use to unfold with somebody? It doesn't have to be like a sermon. You could ask them questions like, what, do you, what does righteous mean? And who are the unrighteous? Like, is that us? And what, what is this suffering that he talked about? And 
How could he actually bring us to God? If what kept us from God is sin, what's it mean that he can bring us back to God? Help them see the work that Christ has done. Help explain it to them. His death and his resurrection. This other verse is a more traditional one, Romans uh, 3, 23 through the beginning of 25. I won't, I won't elaborate on it, but it has a lot that you could use. Uh, if, particularly if somebody has more of a religious background, maybe there's somebody who grew up in church so they know what words like uh, glory of God, they know what justified means. There's things in that text that could be helpful to explain to people too, like ideas of grace are embedded in that text. Uh, propitiation is this huge multi-syllable word that talks about how Jesus bore wrath for us, uh, that it was removed from us and placed upon him. So there's things in there that you could teach them too. That's one text you could go to if people start to say, well, like other people sin. I totally realize that everybody else has this problem, but not me and, and not certain people I know because that text, Romans 3, 23, Let's there be no question. God has said that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that includes the person you're talking to. So there's, there's advantages to that. But both of those are from chapter 3 of their respective books of the Bible, 1 Peter 3 or Romans chapter 3, that you could use to open up and talk to a person. Tell them the good news of the redemption that Jesus has brought about, the way that they can actually be returned to God, forgiven by God. I would say real briefly, this is the center of the gospel. You can, like there can be attempts that you make to just kind of soft pedal this and to just say, well, like we kind of made some mistakes, but Jesus, you know, he did some stuff and like he loves us. And so if you just uh, trust him and just leave it real generic, then God will forgive you because God loves you. The cross has to be talked about. The word of the cross is what has power in it. And if we are not willing to talk about that, people are not going to take their sin serious. And Christ's death, his resurrection is going to mean nothing to them. But if we are willing to, to courageously say, man, we are unrighteous. Like we are ruined as people. But God is gracious and merciful. The way that we can be brought back to him is through a brutal event that took place on the cross. We have to proclaim that. And help people see that God is confronting their sin. He's punishing their sin in the cross. But because of the cross itself, he can actually forgive them. Like we have to confront them. But in the very thing we're confronting them with, their guilt and God's hate of their sin, at the, looking at that same cross, they can see forgiveness. They can see redemption because of what Christ actually did in their place. So we need people to know, they must know, if we're going to be clear, they need to know about their ruin. They need to know about the redemption that's in Christ, that he accomplished in the cross and in the resurrection. But the third R is not arithmetic, it is regeneration. And this would be where we start to talk to the person directly themselves. Because the other ideas may just feel like they're about human beings in general. Like we're all ruined, the human race is cursed, Christ died for human beings and in a sense at large, that, that it, it's something that's for us. But we must veer towards talking to the person about their own soul, their own state, their own need of change. So this would be where we want to move from just talking about the events of history to talking about this person directly themselves, what has to happen in them. This is the text that, that Katie read uh, so well for us. 
Regeneration, if you're, if you're not familiar with it, we're going to look at John chapter 3. Uh, this is the text of the Bible that speaks most clearly, I think beautifully, about this idea. But being regenerated, it, it's a, a big word, but I think it makes sense if you're not familiar with it. To be generated, it means to start, right? To, to begin, to be made. So if we're regenerated, it means that we're made again. Where Jesus uses this term in this text, we'll read again, of being born again. There's this idea that has to happen, Jesus is going to say, in all of us where spiritual life has to begin. We have to have new life given to us that wasn't there before. Where there's been deadness, there has to be life. This must happen in the person you're speaking to. So read with me. Uh, Much of this is the words of Jesus himself. He's having a conversation with this man named Nicodemus. And John records this for us. He wrote this, he said, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. So Jesus used a powerful image here, one that kind of made Nicodemus scratch his head. And if people aren't real familiar with it, it may make them scratch their head if you start reading this with them and talk about being born again. What is that? What does that mean that I need to be born again? But Jesus is clearly, even it's explicit in this text, he's not saying you need to be born physically again. That's impossible. That doesn't even make sense. That's irrational to say you need to physically restart your life. But he's saying that you need to be, and I would point this out if you're reading with a person, that they need to be, verse 6, born of the Spirit. They've been born of the flesh whenever their birthday was long ago. They've been born of the flesh. But Jesus says there has to be an even greater birth that takes place in a person. This, this birth by the Holy Spirit. This, this new life that's given to them uh, in their soul, in their spirit. And what Jesus said, this, there's much at stake here, isn't there? Because Jesus didn't say, like, it'd be nice if you're born again. Or that's kind of a nice perk. Like, he says, if you're not born again... You cannot see the kingdom of God. You cannot enter the kingdom of God. Those are strong statements. Jesus is saying, this has to happen in you. If you're to be part of my kingdom, the kingdom of my Father, whether now or in the future, you must be born again. Something miraculous has to happen within you. He must do a miracle in us. And people need to understand this. They need to understand the profoundness of the change that needs to happen in them. That they're not just some neutral or decent person who kind of needs to turn over a new leaf. They are a dead person who needs to be made alive. They have a hard heart that needs to be softened. They have a soul that needs to be brought to life. 
They need to know this. They don't just need to like get back into church or try harder or be nicer, work harder. That is nonsense. That is external behaviors that Satan would love to have them run after. But they need to know, I need to be born again. Like, I'm ruined. I'm ru- but I need, Jesus says, I need to be born again if I'm going to be part of his kingdom. We need him to do a miracle in us. And this is not something we can do on our own. Babies don't make themselves be born, right? As simple as that sounds, their mothers give birth to them. We can't do this ourselves. The Holy Spirit the one, is the one, Jesus says, who works this in us. He's the one who changes us. He's the one that is going to do, that can do, this miracle that needs to take place in you. But it must be done, and praise God, Jesus says, it can be done. By the Holy Spirit. He actually can change you, friend, as I'm talking to you. Whether you think you are the most hardened person, you are, your heart is not hard enough that Jesus can't soften it by his Holy Spirit. He says it must happen in you. And he says it can happen in you. That the Holy Spirit can work this in you. We sang earlier, I don't know if you pay attention to the lyrics that we sing, but we sang earlier, Thy power and thine alone can change the leper spots and melt the heart of stone. People need to know that they need to be born again and that God can do that in them. I I would say this subject of being born again is one that could be particularly helpful to talk about with people who've grown up around Christianity, who who just have this surface level, like, yeah, I believe that stuff. Like, I I, long ago, like, I, I, I believe this stuff. I think it's all true, but there's been no change in their life. Some of you have asked, how do I talk to a person like that who says they believe, who says they, they believe the facts of the gospel? This would be a text to talk with them about. Say, Jesus says, friend, you must be born again. Has that happened in you? Is there, he talks about the wind blowing and uh, blowing where it wishes and how you, you can see the effect of it, right? So do, I, do you see effect of this in your life? Like, do you actually see a love of Jesus? Do you actually see obedience in your life? And if they cannot say yes in any way, shape, or form, then I think we have a right to at least ask them, have you been born again? Because Jesus says it has to happen. So they need to know it has to happen. But this could be a tempting. You could imagine as you're speaking to a person about this, and Jesus says, you must be born again. You could see how people would just kind of wring their hands and say, I can't do that in myself. Like, why are you even telling me this? Like, I, I, I need to be born again. Okay, I can't do that. I can't make myself, I can't make my heart change. I can't make my soul change. And they could, you could see how that would lead them to despair and just saying, man, God's just going to do what he wants. Like, why are you even trying to talk to me? He'll either change me or he won't. He'll either give birth to me, like you say, or he won't. But I would say, I would point out to, the, to your friend that you're speaking to, Jesus never commands us to be born again. He says it has to happen. But what he commands, I would recommend that you drop down in John chapter 3, down to verses 16 and 17. Because what is commanded to the person is to believe. He says that God so loved the world uh, that, whoever, that, that he sent his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him, shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And over and over, Jesus, he doesn't set command, be born again, be born again, be born again. He says, believe, believe, believe. 
And it's not just factual belief you're calling a person to. It is belief from a heart that is changed, a heart that sees Christ as great, that, that doesn't just say some prayer to check a box, but that has been genuinely changed, that says, man, I hate that I sin against him, but I am so thankful he died for me. I trust in him. That's the type of belief you're calling them to. So we don't just command be born again. They need to know it has to happen, but we command them to believe. I, I was thinking of the illustration of, of giving birth and having witnessed a few of these. A baby doesn't uh, make itself be born, but a baby does cry once it's born, right? That's its first act. Its first voluntary act typically is to cry out. The mother gave birth, but they cry out. And what we call people to do is to cry out to God for forgiveness. Yeah, you can't make yourself be born, but if you cry out to him, it's a sign that you have been born again. It's a sign that the Spirit has been working in your life, that he has changed you. So we call them to believe. We call them to cry out to the Savior, the one who died that he might bring them to God. So they need to know that they must be born again and that God can give them new birth and that the sign of that birth is crying out to him for forgiveness. And praise God, you need to let that person know that if they do cry out to him, he is faithful to forgive. He's faithful to the promise to forgive them of their sins and to cleanse them. They can be brought back to God. These three R's are just one tool that you could use. Uh, I was talking to Dustin actually this week. We were using the analogy of fishing, uh, of how Jesus called us to be fishers of men. And he used a great illustration I thought I'd pass on. He said that a good fisherman needs a good tackle box. I thought, that is, that's great. I love that. We need tools. We need things that can help us to be clear when we talk to people. Things that will help people want to, I mean, fishing is a bait and switch, right? We're not trying to kill people, eat people, trick people, but we are trying to put bait there for them in a good sense to bite onto something that's going to give them life. And it's good for us to have ideas and ways that we can package things to share with them. And there's these three R's, these three uh, text from chapters three of different books of the Bible. It's a helpful tool. But if you don't use this, have something that you're learning. Have some way that you can speak in a clear way to people as opportunity arises. Ways that you can point them to the Bible. Say, man, this is what God says. This is the way that you can be brought back to him. And then practice doing it. As silly as it might sound, I want to do this. I want to just practice with my friends. Practice maybe with my wife. Practice in front of the mirror. Practice saying these things. Uh, that may feel hokey or weird to you, but will it not at least benefit your soul to hear yourself saying these things, uh, to hear yourself <laughs> saying the good news? Uh, it should work in your own heart to say, thank you, God. Like, help me to communicate the weight and the beauty of this to other people. Uh, lastly, I would encourage you to remember this, is to remember, and I appreciate what Pastor Tom shared earlier, remember that the power is in the word of Christ, not in your clarity. Not in you having just the right, the punchy things to say and the right time things to say. The power is in the cross and in the word of the cross. And if we are faithful to proclaim that, then the Lord will accompany it with power. We, can, we ought to speak clearly, right? Paul said that. We ought to strive to speak clearly, but the power is not in our clarity. It is in the message of the cross and in the resurrection of Christ. So may God, as we began reading, may God open doors of opportunity for us to share the gospel, for us to declare the mystery of Christ, and may he give us clarity as we do. Amen? I want to invite you to stand. We're going to, I'm going to pray. We're going to